Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 46 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in our beloved franchise's ever quirky history. Because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in their own way, unformidable. We have opening day almost upon us, and while I, it isn't quite 2019 in the world of optimism as far as health and ability to enjoy public events, it at least feels possible to hope this will be a safe and complete baseball season this year and not the strange and truncated 2020 season. And vaccines and reasonable crowd size maintenance, uh, I'm hopeful I might even see the inside of my beloved city field this year, as I expect many of my fellow Met fans are. And if opening day is a source of optimism for anyone who loves baseball, you can forgive Met fans if we're a little more optimistic than others for one day of the year. Because if there's one day on the calendar in which a Met fan can wake up and feel almost statistically guaranteed to enjoy a victory, it's of course opening day. Probably, I'm guessing the most successful date game number on the Met calendar. Uh, game, of course, game one on the schedule certainly has a cachet and winds up being more memorable to most than, say, game 41 on the schedule. Perhaps the Mets have a better game 41 record than game one, but no one remembers that. And if you're going to be an unformidable type candidate, that is, you know, someone who perhaps didn't spend that much time with the Mets, didn't necessarily excel here, or had scant few memorable moments with the franchise. If there's a day to have a memorable moment and have your name remain somewhere on the outskirts of team lore, it would surely be opening day. And that's exactly what Colin Cowgill did a scant nine openers ago. Making me feel very old, uh, Colin Cowgill was born in an auspicious year, 1986, April 28th, 1986 to be exact, in Lexington, Kentucky, making him, like the Mets' previous championship, 34 years old, soon to turn 35. Colin didn't travel far to attend college, sticking in Lexington to attend the University of Kentucky. Uh, even as an exceptional athlete, at 5'9", I'm guessing he perhaps was not a candidate for their more prestigious basketball team, uh, but Cowgill excelled on the college diamond for the Wildcats, getting drafted as a junior by the Oakland A's in the 29th round of the 2007 June draft, but he elected to return to school and improved his stock, getting drafted in the 5th round in 2008 by the Arizona Diamondbacks. As a senior drafted in this slaughter area, Calgill likely was looked at as more of an organizational depth piece, perhaps a possible bench player or fourth outfielder at his peak, which ultimately would represent uh, pretty much exactly what he would become in his professional career. However, his minor league star did flare a bit brightly for a short time, as Calgill flashed a decent power-speed combo in the minors, and then when you further factor in his very strong minor league walk-to-strikeout ratio and contact rates, uh, combined perhaps also with the larger baseball-wide timing of the analytic moneyball approach starting to become more embraced uh, industry-wide. Uh, it, it combined, to, I think, to make many people look at Cowgill as a potentially underrated and underappreciated prospect, in particular as it amounts to his size, you know, that he, that, at five foot nine. 
uh, he might have been overlooked due to that factor, but that the numbers seem to indicate a potential underrated or breakout player. Uh, and, you know, then, of course, there's the prospect bias of he was in a highly touted first round draft pick, but he had a standout 2011 season in the minor leagues, uh, definitely aided by his time in the Pacific Coast League in general and his home park of Reno in particular. But in, I think, 98 games, he hit 13 homers, stole 30 bases, and had a 354, 430, 554 slash line. In a report feature on him, the always astute John Sickles acknowledged the PCL home boost, including the fact that his OPS at home was over 1.1, 1.109, but noted that Calgill had a strong throwing arm, above average speed, sound plate discipline, and again, that scouts tend to be suspicious of small right-handed hitters. Uh, so Sickles ultimately concluded with his speed, pop, and defensive versatility, he would fit perfectly into a fourth outfield role, but given his performance to date, he deserves at least one shot as a regular. And in fact, Cowgill's excellence in the minors in 2011 did earn him a call-up to Arizona in July for a team that was actually in the thick of a pennant race. He made his debut on July 28th and would get semi-regular playing time, short end of a left-field platoon and a pinch hitter off the bench, getting his first career hit on July 31st, 2011 as a pinch hitter against the Dodgers' Scott Elbert, later hitting his first career home run against Corey Lupke and the Padres on August 28th, 2011. Uh, the Diamondbacks won their division in 2011, which I had zero recollection of till I researched this podcast. And Calgill would actually make their postseason roster, I would have to guess, as essentially their 25th man. He appeared in two games in the NLDS, one as a defensive replacement, and in the other, he had his only career postseason at bat, uh, hitting a clutch big two-run single off of Randy Wolf in Game 4 against the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, giving the Diamondbacks a couple of insurance runs in a game they'd went on to win 10-6. to uh, the team would lose a heartbreaker in Game 5 of the NLDS to the Milwaukee Brewers of Ryan Braun and Prince Fielder and miss a chance to advance to the NLCS, and that was Cowgill's only career postseason at bat, so career 1,000 hitter in the postseason. At 25, Cowgill was a little old to be a big-time prospect, but the A's had drafted him earlier, were clearly still enamored, and in the offseason of 2011, Calgill got traded to Oakland as kind of the main, uh, I think, piece in a five-player trade that brought Arizona pitcher Trevor Cahill, uh, who was a young starter, one year removed from an 18-8 and season, although he had poor peripherals, you know, know, advanced metrics looked at him as a good sell-high candidate, and probably even gave Calgill a little more cachet in that the ease of course, always seem to know more than most people, particularly those days. That would be a Billy Bean move that did not work out too well for the A's. Uh, not that Cahill really excelled. He was kind of an innings-eater type starter for Arizona. But Calgill struggled with injuries in 2012, struggled on the field when he played, and never really se- seemed like maybe that one chance to be an everyday player that Sickles and other observers thought he might deserve might be passing by at age 26. Uh, but enter one more factor that would give Cowgill a brief ev- chance to be an everyday player. That is a franchise reeling from the financial fallout of the Bernie Madoff affair. 
and a GM trying to balance multiple balls and implement a bargain basement money ball approach to keep a team afloat, even while preserving the fiction that the Mets weren't really hamstrung by the Wilpons' financial woes. Never really saying they were, or you know, really 100% committing to rebuilding, uh, really from Sandy Alderson's hiring in October 29th, 2010, through the first few years of his uh, GM-ship, uh, the team really consistently spent their off-seasons bringing in a bunch of these under-the-radar potential gems, uh, you know, from Brad Emus before the 2011 season. Uh, you know, all these all these implications that these players might have a vague, underappreciated aspect or that that Sandy was doing that money, taking that money ball approach and going to find diamonds in the rough, and not that the Mets were could barely afford to run a franchise. At any rate, Colin Cowgill became the latest in that string on December 18th, 2012, when the Mets acquired him for Jeffrey Marte, at the time a very young prospect, a toolsy prospect in low A, uh, that you know had some some future and of course did have a brief major league career of his own, but got traded for Colin Cowgill. Of course, a much more notable Mets transaction occurred in December of 2012, and that is that the Wilpons scoured the couch cushions, sold enough pieces of the team or whatever uh, to successfully extend beloved franchise icon David Wright in the offseason. Uh, it was in December of 2012 that Wright signed his $138 million well, contract seven years, 122 million, uh, with a club option uh, picked up for 2013, and uh, you know extended the the franchise, extended you know Tom Seaver's franchise. It extended the the icon, the captain, and our beloved David Wright. But obviously, the Mets didn't have a lot of money uh, elsewhere that off season, and in fact, reactions to Cowgill's acquisition ranged from snark. Uh, including people pointing out that the Mets' highest-paid outfielders for 2013 were Bobby Bonilla and Jason Bay. Man, people love those Bobby Bonilla references. Uh, but also there were those, uh, you know, the people who were really committed to the Sandy rebuild and approach and that, you know, this was going to be a savvy, under-the-radar pickup where this was just someone who needed a chance to get every day at bats and, you know, could perhaps potentially flourish. And Cowgill proceeded to have an excellent spring training in 2013 to win the center field job outright. Uh, and it looked like it could be more of the latter. It could be, you know, a clever pickup. Now, I tend to be a skeptical Met fan, so you know, I don't, I don't understand how one couldn't be, to be perfectly frank. But you know, that's for that's for us to discuss elsewhere outside of here. But uh, you know, any skepticism to the effect that the Cowgill move would be pointless, uh, might have melted away a bit uh, as of opening day of 2013. The Mets opened the 2013 season at home on April 1st against the San Diego Padres, and it was infinitely more successful than their City Field debut home opener in 2009 against the San Diego Padres. Colin Cowgill uh, wore number four and patrolled center field like Lenny Dykstra before him on opening day, the first batter of the season in City Field, and he did pop out to second in his first at-bat and strike out in his second at-bat. But 
Then later on, Cowgill came alive uh, with the team already ahead four to one. Uh, Cowgill doubled off the left top of the left field wall in the bottom of the fourth. Would have driven in a run if the base runner were not Jonathan Neese. Uh, as I remember watching from the upper deck, uh, you know, it wasn't Bartolo Colon speed, but it was uh, not too impressive. But Cowgill's double would would kick off a rally that would produce three more runs, giving the Mets a 7-1 to lead and a shocking opening day runaway that became even more of a laugher later on in the bottom of the seventh when Cowgill once again went very deep to left field, uh, launching a grand slam just over the orange line and uh, I'm not sure the years when you know when all the painting and the lines and the rules went into effect in City Field, but I remember being at the game and being very confused. And in fact, uh, the players were just running around the bases. And I don't think it was until Cowgill got to like third that the umpires signaled home run and had to verify that yes, the ball just uh, crossed over the orange line for a grand slam home run, giving the Mets an 11-2 lead, and Cowgill a very impressive 2-for-5, uh, two-run two scored, 4-RBI, opening day smash debut. It marked the first Grand Slam by a Met in the first game of his Met career, and I believe it was the first opening day Grand Slam by any Met in 18 years. And it may have seemed to augur well, but it was absolutely Colin Cowgill's high-water mark as a New York Met. I have to say, though, for what was ultimately a terrible season, the Mets finished 2013 with a 74-88 record. Uh, I remember 2013, or at least the first two-thirds of it, relatively fondly uh, for a poor Met season. It remember really the first year that City Field really felt like home. Again, I don't remember uh, when they started, you know, painting the orange and, you know, correcting the correcting the field and making it more Mitzian, but more importantly, uh, you know, I, I remember that being a truly rollicking opening day, and, you know, 11-2 win will do that and make make you optimistic, even if your team doesn't seem to have all the pieces, uh, but particularly because, of course, of the development of Matt Harvey. Uh, the, the first game I attended in 2013 was opening day. Uh, the second game I attended in 2013 was on April 19th, uh, which uh, many of us will fondly remember much more as the Harvey's Better game when uh, Matt Harvey outdueled Steven Strasburg. And again, uh, you know, but just Met fans and, you know, City Field, which seemed a little moribund its first few seasons, except for maybe R.A. Dickey the season before. Uh, you know, Matt Harvey really gave the Mets some appointment TV. I, I still remember being stuck at work late on May 7th for a game I wanted to attend and getting texts from my friend just saying he's going to do it and being like, just knowing, oh, Matt Harvey's throwing a no-hitter. Uh, actually was throwing a perfect game against the White Sox for six and two-thirds until an infield single. And of course, the the City Field hosted the All-Star game that year once again, started by Matt Harvey, uh, also featuring David Wright as All-Star ambassador. And 2013 uh, was also really David Wright's last David Wright season, where he was a well-deserved all-star, uh, you know, not just a, an ambassador for the Mets. He, he had an over 900 OPS that year and over five war. It was really his last healthy, uh, hearty, full David Wright season. So they had Harvey and Wheeler. They had traded for Noah Syndergaard at the cost of the beloved R.A. Dickey. 
Seemed like the franchise was on an upswing, potentially, if they could ever spend some money. However, I was also at a game in August when news started filtering through the crowd that Matt Harvey was going to need Tommy John surgery uh, that year, and it seemed like all of the hope and promise that was building was about to get short-circuited. But I digress, because podcast is not quite about Matt Harvey, but... Uh, you know, just just like the 2013 season, starting with a bang and ending very sourly for the Mets, the 2013 season started with a bang and much more suddenly and quickly ended sourly for Colin Cowgill, who would not be with the Mets in August of 2013. Cowgill struggled mightily after opening day. By May 1st, he had been sent back down to AAA. He not only lost his job, got sent down to AAA. Vegas to try and get himself straightened out, uh, did come back up to the big league club for a bit, but by late June, the Mets had designated Cowgill for assignment and traded him to the Los Angeles Angels after they claimed him for minor leaguer Kyle Johnson. All in all, as a Met, Cowgill appeared in 23 games, 63 plate appearances, and he slashed 180 206, 311 for a 518 OPS and a very disappointing 45 OPS plus. So if you take out that opening day production, I can only imagine what those numbers are. But again, if you're going to have one good day, you may as well make it opening day and you'll be remembered a bit more than some others. Calgill's numbers with the Angels in 2013 were similar, uh, you know, Played in 50 games, hit 231, uh, two homers, and 91 at-bats. But he did have a decent 2014 for them, actually the best uh, full major league year of his career. Uh, He went into spring training competing with uh, J.B. Shook to be the Angels' fourth outfielder and won the competition and won an opening day spot on the roster for the Angels. And in 293 plate appearances over... 106 games in 2014, Cowgill had a 99 OPS plus, basically league average hitter, uh, which again was really the, the, at age 28, his best full major league season. Uh, Spent pretty much the whole season in the majors and again made the postseason roster for a team that made the division series. Uh, He appeared in one game as a pinch runner defensive replacement, but did not get an at bat. you know, preserving that 1,000 uh, career postseason batting average, but sadly not getting to experience uh, championship series or World Series play in his major league career. 2015 played out a little more like 2013 for Cowgill, where he made made the Angels opening day roster. Oh, well, not as a, more like 2014, not as a starting player, but as their fourth outfielder. Uh, unfortunately, his production was more 2013 level. He struggled only had 74 plate appearances over 50 games before being sent down to AAA and didn't make it back up to the big league club in 2015. Uh, During that offseason, the Cleveland Indians purchased his rights and brought him to Cleveland. Uh, Again, Cowgill, uh, you know, perhaps had some king of spring training vibe going for him now that I think about it, because he really was... uh, exceptional in 2013 spring training and Mets for the Mets, but he once again made the team out of spring training, but uh, this time he went 1 for 12 over 9 games with Cleveland, obviously had a very short leash, and those were his final big league appearances.
Cal Gilgids did stick it out in professional baseball for three more years, bouncing around the Phillies, the Nationals, and the Padres organizations in 27, 2017, 2018, and 2019, but never got more major league playing time. Prior to the 2020 season, Cowgill actually joined the Seattle Mariners organization on a minor league deal, uh, but you know, never received a promotion to the club during the abbreviated season, and of course there was no minor league season to speak of last year, so 2019 was his last year on the field in organized ball. He was officially part of the Mariners organization in 2020, and now to make a next generation feel old, just as I did when I remember like going to ball games and seeing... I don't know, Lloyd Mosby standing in the coaching box. 34-year-old Colin Cowgill is now the manager for the Mariners AA affiliate in Arkansas, officially uh, ending his playing career and making him a manager. So, yeah. Time moves fast, doesn't it? (laughs) For the entirety of his major league career, Colin Cowgill recorded a 2.9 war, according to baseball reference. Uh, that is over 689 major league at bats. He hit 12 home runs, drove in 57 runs, stole 14 bases, and he had a career slash line of 234, 297, 329 for a 6.27 OPS. Again, I think I gave you most of those numbers as they met already. I can tell you that in a scant 23 games, he did record a negative 0.5 B-War, according to baseball reference, in those 63 plate appearances. So, uh, disappointing Mets tenure for Colin Cowgill. Again, speaking to the fact, if you're going to do something good, I guess either do it at the beginning or, in a, you know, George Costanza fashion, leave him wanting more, you know, get in a good get in a good final at bat and say your good nights and hit the road. Uh, Colin Cowgill did the former, and for that, he will always be just a little bit unformidable. Hope someone else uh, pulls a Colin Cowgill this opening day in a few days. Some unknown player has a glorious day. Our stars have great days. We win 11-2, and more importantly, it's a much more successful season on a whole as the 2013 season, but we shall see. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Unformidable, everyone. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. Follow Amazon Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find this and all of our Amazing Pods wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review if you can. It really helps us out. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at Wolf, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets!